Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Easiest way to get there, turn to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and turn back four books. So you can go Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, and then Zephaniah. If you see Habakkuk, you've gone too far. Zephaniah chapter 1 is what we'll be in this morning. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 to 6. This is, of course, a new book that we are beginning. It's a fairly short one, only a few chapters. Probably make our way through it for a couple of months. Zephaniah chapter 1, we will begin by reading together. Verses 1 to 6. This is Zephaniah writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we read, beginning in verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priest. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, as you spoke so long ago through Zephaniah, you warned of many judgments to come. Judgments against the people who were called by Your name, who were perverting Your worship, who had rejected Your law, who had still called themselves the people of Yahweh while engaging in the ways of the world, the idolatrous practices of the nations. You sent warnings to all the other nations that they also would not escape your judgments. You sent a warning to the whole world, warning all peoples even now that a day is coming when you will utterly sweep away all wicked men. You are a God who cannot look upon sin cannot simply overlook it. You are a holy God 
and a just God. The God who demands righteousness. The God who made the world to be very good. And then men rebelled. The world was thrust into sin and darkness. You have promised throughout your word that it will not remain so. And the day is coming when all ungodliness will be judged. You are a God who demands full obedience. When you speak, we are to listen and to obey. It is not sufficient to obey with half hearts. So I pray for our time this morning and as we make our way through the prophet Zephaniah. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in each one of our hearts. That you would expose whatever idols we are holding on to that you would awaken us from our sleep, that we would understand the times that we live in, that the end of the ages have come upon us, that a day of judgment is fast approaching, and that we would live in light of eternity. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Well, I want to begin this morning by raising and answering the question, why are we in this book? For all the books that we could go through, why have I chosen to preach through this book? Is it just because I have a strange interest in going through obscure books that not many people read through, unfortunately. I think I would probably admit there's a tinge of that. (laughs) Judging by the first several verses that we've just read, perhaps it's because I just want to preach in fire and brimstone. Give everyone a good dose of judgment. Well, I have to admit that, again, I do love the Old Testament. I find it to be horribly neglected by many Christians. And I do believe that there is a role for preaching fire, brimstone, judgment. And this is sorely lacking in many churches. We've replaced the fire and brimstone with pillows and blankets. But that is not the reason that I think it's profitable for us to look at this book in particular. To answer this question, I want to remind you of what the historical context of this book is. Zephaniah, in the beginning of the book, tells us when his prophetic ministry took place. 
He says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord that came to him, and that is at least partially recorded for us in this book, it came to him in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah prophesied in the days of the king Josiah. Now, if you know anything about King Josiah, you'll know that what he was known for was being one of the few kings in Judah who was faithful to the Lord. There had been a long history of ungodly, unfaithful kings leading the people of Israel in the northern kingdom and the people of Judah in the southern kingdom into all kinds of wickedness. Josiah was known for leading the charge in reforming the nation of Judah and in ridding it, ridding it of, to the best of his ability, of, of all of its idolatry. Now, sadly, because of the hardened hearts of so many people in Judah, after Josiah's death, the nation would quickly revert back to its idolatry. But at least for around 20 years of his 31-year reign, Josiah did everything he could to reform the worship of God that had been corrupted over decades and really centuries and to call the people back to faithfulness to the Lord. He was a reformer. And because of his efforts, because his heart was devoted to the Lord, the wrath of God, which had been prophesied against the nation of Judah long before Josiah ever came, was at least averted during Josiah's reign. The Lord honored Josiah's leadership. And he said, that the judgment that would come upon Judah would not fall upon Judah in his day. Now, most of his reforms were the direct result of having rediscovered the law of God, which had basically been lost for decades, if not even longer, because we know that the Passover had not even been observed since the days of the judges hundreds of years prior. The only reason that the law had been rediscovered in the temple was because Josiah had ordered that the temple be repaired. Through neglect, through basically what amounted to vandalism from all of the idolatrous practices of the people at the time in the temple, the temple had started to fall apart. And when Josiah saw it, there was something within him that was stirred. This didn't seem right. It was as if something was in his conscience and in his mind that moved him to order that the temple be repaired which itself eventually led to the rediscovery of the law. 
they had to wipe off layers of dust from their Bibles. They've been neglected. Well, it's very likely that one of the things that stirred up Josiah's conscience to have a concern for the worship of the Lord and for the temple was the prophetic ministry of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, we're told in verse 1, was a descendant of King Hezekiah. He was of royal blood. He was family to Josiah. Maybe a second or a third or a fourth cousin. Whatever the exact relationship would have been, Zephaniah was in the royal house. And he would have been in the same royal circles that Josiah himself grew up in. And Zephaniah had seen all of the wickedness that the prior kings, Manasseh and Ammon, had introduced to the people of Judah. He had seen how the temple and the worship of God and the commandments of God had all been rejected and corrupted. He had seen the syncretistic worship of Yahweh together with the god Baal. And as we know from the whole book, Zephaniah fiercely opposed all of it. He probably would have been one of the few voices that Josiah heard that would have warned him against going down the same path that his father Ammon and his grandfather Manasseh had gone down. He was a young boy when he became king. It's insane to think about how young he was. He was eight years old. He was the, the age of my son. Could you imagine Ezra being king right now? That'd be crazy. But that's how old Josiah was. He, he needed guidance and instruction and someone to lead him to think properly about God and about the temple about his role as the king and the leader of the people of Judah, Zephaniah was probably one of the few voices to be preaching truth in the ears of the young king. The point is that the prophetic ministry of Zephaniah is a ministry that is rooted in the royal house and that immediately precedes the days of reformation under King Josiah, which suggests that it was the prophetic preaching of Zephaniah that was instrumental in the life of Josiah and the reforms that were to follow. And that in itself, I believe, is a worthy reason to consider the message of this prophet. Because our day is not so unlike his. The present state of the church is one in which the temple walls are crumbling in disarray. It's in need of repair. Even if you talk to Christians who do not share the exact same concerns, either theologically or morally, pretty much everyone agrees that the church in our culture is very weak. Our pulpits are weak. 
Many of our families are in disarray and are broken. We are soft on sins. We are divided. We are biblically ignorant. We're prayerless. You could point all kinds of problems out that permeate the church, particularly in America. At the same time, though, let's not just think about the church out there. There are plenty of people who make a living, in fact, and gather whole followings of people talking about all of the problems of the church out there. But what about us? What about here? What about you? What about me? Would you consider yourself to be a strong Christian? Is your life marked by the zealous pursuit of holiness and the glory of God in every aspect of your life? Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? When you're thinking about your life, what are you actually passionate about? What is it that drives you, that drives your decisions? Is it Christ? Do you want more of Christ? Have you you've tasted Him? You've tasted His goodness? You've tasted the Gospel? And you want more. Have you come to see Him as the bread of life? And you're hungry. And you want more food. And you know He is always there to give more of Himself. And you're going to get it. Does your soul crave Him? You think about and pray about and talk to others about and strategize about how your life can be even more devoted to Him. We, we can all certainly look at our lives, look in our hearts, and see areas, perhaps many areas, where we are being faithless. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to repent because of it. And with all of your zeal to go after it, to be more faithful, to strive after glorification, sanctification. Are you devoted to this pursuit? Or, as you think of yourself, are you more devoted to the world? Is it more attractive? You're devoted to the cares and the comforts and the pleasures and the glory that it offers you. I think if we're honest, we'd probably have to say we, we are more worldly. 
been holy. And if that's the case, then we need reform. We need another reformation, another revival. And not just a reform in forms, not just in the externals, what makes us look like we're Christian. We need reform from the heart. We need to be awakened out of the slumber of sin. And we have to start paddling upstream towards Mount Zion. That's effort. You stream against, you swim against the current, you paddle against the current. That's hard. That's what we have to do. We have to work. We have to be zealous. We have to exercise our spiritual muscles. And we have to paddle up to the mountain, Zion, knowing that the promise is that we'll make it. Christ will be kind and gracious to us. And and as we are paddling, He is pulling. We have to make our way towards Zion and not drift down to the valley of the shadow of death. Drifting is easy. You can do that in your sleep. And I think that if we recognize that we need reform, this book in particular can help us with that. As this is the very ministry that no doubt helped Josiah to lead reforms in his day. If we prayerfully listen to it, if we listen to its warnings, we listen to its promises, most of which are found at the end of the book. There are some interspersed, though. If we hear those warnings and hear those promises, Zephaniah can lead us to reform our own ways. He can lead us to rend our hearts in repentance and repair the temple. Two of the ways that he does this for us in the passage that we're in this morning is by warning us, first of all, about a universal judgment to come. Reminding us of the judgment of God that is coming, and two, about the dangers of syncretism, syncretistic devotion and worship to God. Now the opening prophecy of Zephaniah begins with a message that gets right to the point. There are no qualifications here. There's no embarrassment on Zephaniah's part. Zephaniah was in no way like many modern preachers who feel the need to apologize for every controversial point in the Bible before stating it, which causes the points to die the death of a thousand qualifications. I know this can be difficult to hear. Before I say this, I need to recognize this may be disturbing for some, 
I wish it wasn't so, but it's in the Bible. That's terrible. That's not what Zephaniah did. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what the apostles did. We are not ever to be embarrassed over the word of God and the truth that is proclaimed and revealed in it. We are to proclaim it with all the authority that it comes with, the authority of God himself. Zephaniah was not concerned about his bedside manners when prophesying to a world that had gone so mad with their idolatry and wickedness that they were slaughtering their own children to false gods. Bedside manners at that point serve no use. This is serious. Zephaniah did what a prophet is called to do and what a preacher should do. He declared the word of God as it came from the mouth of God and with the authority of God. And God's message to the world is a warning about a coming judgment that will be on the scale of the judgment that came upon the world in the days of Noah. That judgment was not a one-off event. It was a type of things to come. Zephaniah says in verse 2, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is God's message to the whole world. The whole face of the earth. It's utterly being swept away. And these are words that are reminiscent of those that He spoke in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord said there, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from the face of the earth. And then the Lord continues in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This announcement of a coming universal judgment is a reversal of creation itself. It's as if the Lord is saying that His wrath is going to roll the clock back on earth such that there will be no living creatures. It is a return in the direction of the world being formless and void. Only here, the clock rolls back days five and six of creation. You can see this in the very order of the things that are swept away. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, it was man who was the very last of God's works. And before him were the beasts. And before them, on the fifth day, the birds were made. And before them, the fish of the sea. But here in Zephaniah, the order is reversed. Man is swept away. Then the beast. Then the birds. Then the 
God's judgment against the world will leave nothing remaining. He's taking back day five and day six of creation. But then we're told something even more specific about this judgment. God is not a God who's going to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked. No, this judgment is going to be targeted. It's going to have a very specific aim. He says that He will sweep away the rubble with the wicked. And the term rubble here refers to stumbling blocks. He will will sweep away stumbling blocks with the wicked. And the stumbling blocks refers to all of the things that are worshiping. Their idols. The things in creation that they have used to form their idols. The beast. The birds. The fish. Man himself. All of these things in creation are the forms of the idols that man has created from his heart. It's similar to what we read in Ezekiel 14, verse 3, where the Lord says there, He says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. These are all their idols. And these stumbling blocks, this this iniquity along with the wicked is going to be utterly swept away. God's universal judgment, in other words, is going to consume everything that is in rebellion against Him. There will be nothing left. There will be no stone unturned. There will be no cave to hide in. When God determines to bring His judgments upon the world, all of the wicked, all idolaters who have rejected Him will be utterly consumed by His fiery wrath. God is a very patient God. He is slow to anger. He abounds steadfast love and in faithfulness. But His gracious character is not a license for sinful men to continue in their sin. To provoke Him. A day will come that is known only to God when His patience will come to an end. When His grace upon man will come to an end. His determination to save His people will reach its fulfillment. And when that day arrives, the world will be consumed by the fire of His holiness and His glory. Peter, in fact, speaks of this very day in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5-7. to Speaking of those who live as if God's wrath will never come and the world will go on as it always has, Peter writes, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water. Perish. 
By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, there are some who have argued, even in Christian circles, that this is just uh, what's called apocalyptic language. No fire is going to consume the world, for otherwise there would be no world to inhabit for the saints the kingdom of God. I would argue that those who hold this kind of interpretation just need to exercise their biblical imaginations a little bit better. The parallel in this text, of course, is the worldwide judgment by a flood. And we know that the flood was very literal. Consumed the entire world. And we know that when the world was destroyed by a flood, it was very much uninhabitable for a period of time. And yet, the same God who flooded the world was obviously able to make it habitable once again. To cause the dry land to appear. To to cause the land to bring forth vegetation. To cause the animals and and all of the creatures of the earth to, to multiply once again. And in the same way, the world again will face a judgment, only not of water, but of fire. Just like what came on Sodom and Gomorrah. And and when that happens, God says that He's going to sweep away all ungodliness and all sin from the face of the earth. It will be a total consumption of everything that is evil. The question is, friends, when that day comes, what side of it will you be on? That's really the most important question that you can ever ask your own soul. Are you going to be among those who are swept away in the wrath of God? Or will you be like those who like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are kept from the flames of the fire so that not even a hair on your head is singed. To be kept from God's fiery wrath, you need the Son of God to stand with you in the flames, to guard you from the flames. You need His righteousness to clothe you in purity. And you need Christ to be your Savior. When we speak of Jesus as Savior, when we sing of Him as being Savior, what's He saving us from? Yes, He's saving us from our sin, but that's not the ultimate salvation. Our sin is bringing something against us, namely, the righteous wrath of God. So we need Christ, the Son of God, to save us from God. 
That's whom we've offended. And that's the provision that's been made. The very one whom we have sinned against is the one who extends His grace to all ungodly sinners now. While there is time to be saved from their sin as they bow the knee to the King. The promise we have is that if we, if we trust in Him, and if we submit our whole lives to His good and perfect will, He will save us. So there's a warning of universal judgment to come. But we also here find in this passage a warning against syncretism. This is directed at the very people who are called by the name of the God of Israel. Lest the people of Judah believe that they will escape God's wrath by virtue of their ethnicity or their culture or their tradition and history or even being outwardly known as the covenant people of God God announces a judgment against them. Specifically, for mixing the worship of Yahweh with the worship of all false gods. He says, beginning in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then, as the prophecy continues and becomes even more specific, we find one of the reasons why Judah was coming under this judgment. God says, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, meaning every part of the idolatrous worship that was associated with Baal. I will cut it off, He says. I will cut off the name of the idolatrous priest. These were specifically priests who were appointed by the kings of Judah to carry out idolatry in the temple. And then he says, they will be swept away along with the Kohanim, the actual priest of the temple. He says, I will cut them all off. Those who bow down on the roofs to the the host of heaven. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. And if you look at the the footnote there, if you have the ESV, I would argue that the footnote is actually the more accurate rendering here. It's it's translated as their king. That they swear by Yahweh and they swear by their king. Which there is a reference to Baal. Baal was often referred to as king. And so again, they are mixing the worship of the Lord with the worship of Baal. They are those who have turned back from following the Lord and who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. What is being described here in this passage, of course, is syncretistic worship. It is the the blending together of the worship of Yahweh with the worship of one of the most well-known gods among the pagan nations at the time, which was Baal. Baal worship had all kinds of wicked practices associated with it. The nations believed that Baal was the one who was responsible for making the land fertile and giving people an abundant crop. And so because of that belief, there came with it all of these cult 
rites, these practices that involve temple prostitution, where there's a woman who's fertile. And if you join yourself with the prostitute, it's as if you're joining yourself with Baal. Baal was associated with storms and rains, and and thus the things that came from the sky. And so Baal worship was also associated with the worship of things like the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. But perhaps most despicable of all, Baal worship involved the sacrifice of children. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, not long after Josiah's reform, God condemns the people of Judah not only for that abominable practice specifically of child sacrifice, but for bringing it into the temple. The place that was called the temple of Yahweh. He says that they had filled the temple with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. It did not matter that outwardly the people of Judah were known as God's covenant people because they had embraced all the ungodliness of the people around them, because they had embraced all the ways of the world, God was bringing judgment against them. Their name would not allow them to escape. And this problem of syncretism, friends, is still a problem in our own day. It just manifests itself in different ways. When, when we were in Malawi, one of the things that we learned was that much of the Christianity that is over there is blended together with African traditional religion. So the practice of, of witchcraft and magic is all too common. People claim to be prophets of God while consulting the dead. I even had a pastor tell me of a situation in his own church where a practicing witch was regularly attending their church, but with no intentions at all of becoming a Christian, no intentions at all of renouncing her witchcraft, and he was afraid about confronting her because he was fearful of her witchcraft. He was afraid that this witch of a woman would pronounce a curse upon him and it'd stick. He he didn't even want to have anything to do with all of the items that she uses in witchcraft. Because he was afraid that if he touches them, something in the witchcraft will bring a curse upon him. Many others will pray to the Lord for healing if they're sick. But if they're not healed, they'll quickly go to the witch doctor for healing. They blended the worship of God with the worship of idols. 
And of course, we're not immune from this either. We may not believe in witches and witch doctors, though even this is gaining some traction again. We we may not worship the sun, we may not worship the moon and the stars, but there is another God that we often obey whose name is Mammon, the God of money. We're a people who live in tremendous abundance. Even as as we talk about financial difficulties that have arisen over the years through bad policies, economic booms and busts, Inflation, higher gas prices, groceries. We are still among the wealthiest people in the world. And it gives us all kinds of comforts and freedoms. It gives us leisure and pleasure. And one of the great dangers for us is the worship of Christ with the American dream. Many have bought into the lie of mammon. That God's will for them, the reason that He's placed them where they are, is so that they can pursue their dreams. It's so that they can do whatever their heart desires. They can follow their heart. It's, it's constantly preached, even in children's media, Disney cartoons. You follow your heart. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a person should have no goals and they should have nothing to strive towards, but what I'm warning against is the all-too-common practice of sacrificing Christ on the altar of personal ambition. Parents want their children to be superstar athletes, and so they compromise obedience to Christ and His commandments for the sake of sports. Countless men and women have bought into the lie that a prosperous career is greater and more dignifying than raising children. Or at a minimum, that an established career is required before marriage, before children could ever even enter the picture. It's one of the reasons why you see so so often now, even in churches, women who are in their 30s and 40s, who are unmarried, because there's not even a man that's out there who's willing to ask them out. They're busy with their own lives, their own jobs, their own careers. The church is relegated to nothing more than an optional social club with the occasional fun activities, while the real relationships and accountability, if accountability is even considered, are to be found elsewhere. The false doctrine of easy believism has convinced countless professing Christians that once they're saved, once they're baptized, once they've prayed a prayer, once they've walked an aisle, there's really nothing else after this point that's required of them. Obedience isn't really that big of a deal. It's optional because we have grace. We can live however we please because grace. Let us sin that grace may abound. They punched their ticket to heaven, and now we can get back to the real worship of mammon. 
Friends, we could, of course, go on and on about all the dangers of syncretistic worship in our own lives and in our own culture and in the church here. The church in the States. We have as many false gods today as the people of Judah had then. We just call them by different names. We secularize them to make them sound more dig- dignified, more, more natural, more, more accepting. But the point is this. God has no pleasure in half-hearted devotion. You can't serve two masters. You, you have to pick one. You will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other, as Jesus says. When speaking about serving God and money. You cannot mix together the gospel and Christianity with the gods of this age. You you cannot hold on to the world with one hand and to Jesus with the other. You cannot follow Satan and Christ. You cannot serve the flesh and the Spirit, because they're all opposed to one another. You must choose one and abandon the other. You must follow Christ with your whole heart, your whole mind, your strength, even your body, even at the cost of losing everything in the world, or you must renounce Christ have the world. Those are the options that we're given in Scripture. You can't have both because Jesus demands all of us. He's the master. We are the servant. There is not a single part of our lives that does not have as its end point and grand purpose the glory of God. When you work, you work for the glory of God. The very way you approach work is to be very different from the world because all of your labors are are labors that are in honor of God. You, You use your time even at work to honor God. When you raise your family, you do it for the glory of God. When you eat, you eat for the glory of God. When you decide what you're going to do with your time and your money and you do all things for the glory of God. When you sleep, you sleep for the glory of God. If, if you slumber, if you're like the, the lazy man who needs to look and learn from the ant in the book of Proverbs, right? you're not sleeping for the glory of God, you're sleeping for your own glory. Even we sleep for the glory of God, resting our bodies for another day to come of living for His glory. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and so also are we made in His image to proclaim the glory of God. So friends, as we close this morning, I I want you to simply ask the question, where am I compromising? And, and ask the Lord through His Word to search your heart and to expose where 
where am I compromising? Ask Him to expose the idols that are in your heart. Where are you trying to serve the Lord and Baal? And as He shows that to you, as He does, He places things on our conscience and does not let us, if, if, if we are His, He does not allow us to be comfortable with Baal worship. As He exposes those things, friends, you repent. You, you repent. You turn. You say, no more will I serve Baal. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you seek Him and you inquire of Him. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we see all throughout Your Word that the temptation to idol worship has always been there among Your people. And even those such as us who are in the New Covenant, it is not as if these temptations do not exist. The Apostle Paul himself warns us against covetousness, which is idolatry. He points us the people of the Old Testament and says that they were examples for us. A warning to avoid idolatry. Lord, it is very easy for us to create all manners of idols. And so we need reform. We need the work of grace to be worked in our hearts. We need the light of the Word of God to expose every element of darkness within. We need You to bring it to our mind before our eyes so that we can do the work of Josiah and smash all the idols. Father, make us a people who with every ounce of our being are zealous for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.